We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Or if we're on the other side of the Atlantic, 1 Corinthians. Sounds so much better. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. A couple of weeks ago, Nancy Mace, a Republican representative from South Carolina, stood at a podium during GOP presidential candidate Tim Scott's prayer breakfast and made at the time what I'm sure she thought was a fairly funny and innocuous comment. Representative Mace, a professing evangelical Christian, jokingly said, quote, Patrick, my fiancé tried to pull me over by my waist this morning, and I was like, no, baby, we ain't got time for this this morning. I got to get to the prayer breakfast, and I got to be on time. Her comments, as many of you already know, sparked a national debate and conversation from all sides. Broader conversations about the intersection between religion and politics aside, that's not our purpose this afternoon, the awkward inference of her comment was nevertheless obvious. Regular extramarital sex was common for her, but that morning, attendance at the prayer breakfast took precedence. Statistically, Mrs. Mace's attitude is reflected among many in the Christians that she claims to represent. For instance, Pew Center Research recently published a survey revealing that 36% of evangelical Christians admit to always or sometimes engaging in extramarital sexual activity. That number is nearly doubled by those who identify with theologically liberal denominations. Now, what's behind those numbers? What motivates those numbers? How we analyze those numbers? That's a bigger conversation than we can have this morning. But no matter how we interpret those numbers or how we want to understand Mrs. Mace's int intentions, this much is true. There is a lot of confusion among professing Christians about God's design for human sexuality and how he wants us to use our bodies. And praise be to God that we are not left then to Christian pollsters or sociologists to help us navigate the, the choppy cultural waters that we live in. No, we have God's sufficient word. And many of the same temptations that we face were faced by Christians through the centuries and God has not left us without wisdom for it. He has spoken clearly on these as, and many matters. Clearly on what is and is not sin, and also how he cleanses and transforms sinners through the power of Christ. There may be some of you here, I realize, that you consider your own past, perhaps some of your own sins and indiscretions, your weaknesses and your failings, and you hear an introduction to a sermon like this, and you go, oh great, I'm about to get clobbered. I aim, by God's grace, to hold out to you again today not only the truth of God's word concerning his expectations for his creation, but even more than that, the grace of the gospel whereby he forgives us of our sins, whereby he purifies us and cleanses us 
And he removes from us the very shame that can so often cripple. So brothers and sisters, with that in mind, I'd have you just remain where you are. I'm not going to have you stand, but hear now the reading of God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee then from sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The second half of chapter 6 is connected to the first half. That's what we looked at last week. You may remember that. And you can see that with a repeated phrase throughout the chapter, did you not know? He repeats it six times. Three did you not knows in verses 1 through 10, and three more in verses 12 to 20. Now, I noted last week that verses 9 to 11 act as a kind of hinge in the chapter, hinging between the first half of the chapter and the second half of the chapter. It, in a sense, it ties a bow on what comes before it, but it also sets up what follows. It's there that the third did you not know in verse 9, as we saw, introduced four related sins. So for the sake of context to our passage, I want to take a look at that. Look at verse 9. Did you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Did you notice that in the middle of this list of sexual sins, Paul includes idolatry? It seems like an odd addition, doesn't it? Except when we think about it, it's really not an odd addition at all because wrong thinking about God always leads to wrong thinking about sexuality. The fundamental problem of, sec of sexual immorality is ultimately a God problem. It's not what we've seen in our own culture's sexual revolution. So there are some who might argue, for instance, that the 1960s and the 1970s, the sexual revolution that took place during those decades, were responsible for the collapse of sexual ethics in our society. 
But in reality, the sexual revolution in the 1960s and 70s was the inevitable consequence of the modern West rejecting God and worshiping in his place human reason. Why is our culture so confused about gender and sexuality? Because we have an idolatry problem. Because verse 9, as we see here, shows us that when we get God wrong, we get sex wrong. The apostle starts his list broadly with the word sexual immorality, or in the Greek, porneia. What does that mean? Sexual immorality includes any form of sexual gratification that may be physical, visual, virtual, or otherwise outside of a permanent, exclusive covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. And this applies to everybody. Single people, engaged people, divorced people, widowed people, everybody. And then you notice he immediately zooms in on married people by listing also the sin of adultery. And that's any form of sexual activity by one marriage partner or another outside or alongside their marriage relationship. And then finally, Paul adds homosexuality to the list. All of these are important for the context of our passage. And here he concludes it with homosexuality. And I want you to note a few things here. First, I want you to note that Paul refers to those who, quote, practice homosexuality. He's not speaking about Christians who are tempted by same-sex attraction, but resist temptation and aim to live godly lives by God's grace. It's not who he's talking about. And I want you to take a second note. You may note that most of your Bibles likely have a footnote explaining how in the original Greek language, Paul combines two words to make one word, and that one word is what's translated in your Bible as homosexuality. One of those two words applies to the active partner in a same-sex relationship, and the other to the passive or the receptive partner. Why is that important? Because in recent decades, liberal mainline Christians and progressive ex-evangelicals, as they call themselves, have argued that Paul's term is merely referring to the exploitative or the, or the forced activity with underage boys, temple prostitutes, and with slaves. They argue that Paul, with all of his ancient and patriarchal and heteronormative worldview, he would have never understood, much less fathomed, the possibility of the kind of committed, loving, monogamous, same-sex relationship that we know today. That can't possibly be what Paul's talking about. Nevertheless, these revisionist views, they can't stand under even the slightest scrutiny from Scripture, much less 2,000 years of the church's teaching on the matter. And so recalling that footnote in your Bible, then we know that the apostle isn't merely talking about abusive relationships or exploitative same-sex relationships because the word that he uses accuses both the active and the passive partner of sin. Now, let me say one more time. Paul here is not talking about believers struggling against the temptation with same-sex attraction. I have known dear saints throughout my own ministry the course of 20 years including some over the years in our own church, who've been tempted in this way, just as each one of us are tempted by sexual sin in various ways. And they live, by God's grace, faithful and godly lives. Praise be to God. They trust God's word, they resist sinful temptation, they put sin to death, and they use their bodies in God-glorifying ways. Now, Paul isn't referring to beloved saints like these. 
To the contrary, such brothers and sisters are trophies of of God's redeeming and transforming grace. And so before we go any further, I want to be abundantly clear on that. That's not who Paul's talking about. But I do want you to finally note that alongside these four areas of sexual sin in verse 9 are laid five other kinds of sin in verse 10. You see it there. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's saying, you're not just tempted towards sexual sin, but you're also greedy. You exploit others for your own gain. You abuse God's gifts for the sake of getting drunk all the time. You're revilers, your reputation ruiners with gossip and slander. Elsewhere in the New Testament, that word revilers is used in the same thought as orgies. It's the, it's the grouping of lots of voices all at once, not unlike the online rage machines that slander others on social media today, that revile others. He's saying you're involved in all of that. And he says you use shady business practices, swindling people out of their money. And so why does Paul list all these together? Well, I think in part, it's to prevent Christians from singling out one particular group and wagging our finger at them. Sure, I may drink a little too much. I may exaggerate a little bit here and there on my timesheet at work. But at least I'm not like one of those people in verse 9. Isn't that the heart of the Pharisee? Thank God I'm not like one of these I remember growing up in the, in, the, in the late 80s and early 90s, and the sexual purity culture was abounding. And I think about it now in hindsight, how many of us had our own sins of pride and self-righteousness and very other things, but at least we had maintained, according to our own external traditions, a certain standard of purity. Now, lo- let me get things straight. The problem with purity culture wasn't a concern for purity. That's a good thing. And it wasn't a concern for baking a a heart for purity into the culture of, of God's people, the church. That's also a good thing. But can there be ways in which we raise up legalistic standards that make us feel okay about our own respectable sins by measuring ourselves against the sins of others and we say, thank God I'm not like that person. That's the real sin. That's the kind of sin that deserves exclusion. Thank God I'm not like one of those. I think in part, Paul pastorally knows our own hearts and our own proclivity toward self-righteous justification to compare and measure ourselves not against God and his holiness and his holy, just, and good law, but to compare ourselves against fellow sinners. And we say like the Pharisee on the Temple Mount, thank God I'm not like one of those verse 9 people. No, Paul says, sinners of all stripes will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that phrase, will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's not a one strike and you're out statement. Let's be clear on that. It's referring to individuals whose lives are are marked by habitual, unrepentant, willful, unchecked rejections of God and his gospel. But then notice in verse 11, We saw it in our our assurance of pardon. It's so glorious that Paul understands all of this behavior that we see in verses 9 and 10, this behavior that's characteristic of the city in which they live. He says to them, as such were some of you. 
That statement assumes that repentance has occurred, change has happened, a new direction has been oriented, that a, that a battle with sin is expected for Christians. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Spirit of our God. The gospel changes everything. It changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we speak. And it changes the way that we live. And it changes the way that we use our bodies. And the reason for this transformation, as we see in verse 11, is the almighty work of God. It is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look here. We are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all of grace through Christ, by faith alone, and, he says, by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit's job in our salvation is to take the work that Christ accomplished in the past by his atoning death on the cross and to apply it to believers in the present by uniting us to Christ. The Christian life is not some sentimental thought of what Jesus did once upon a time to show us how much he loves us. It is a participation in the very life of Christ today, now, this very moment, and tomorrow, and every day after that, if you're in Christ, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who transforms us and who changes us to become more like Christ. And so by uniting us to Christ, by applying to us all of the benefits and the, and the, and the blessings of salvation that Christ won, the Holy Spirit transforms us to become more like Christ. And such were some of you. He's reorienting them. You remember last week he said, you've forgotten who you were. You've forgotten who you once were and you've forgotten who you are now in Christ. And I need to remind you of what it is that God has done for you in Christ and how you enjoy that now in the power of the Holy Spirit who's united you to Christ. Well, all of this is a hinge context for the rest of our passage. That personal transformation through participation in Christ is the key idea for Paul's sexual ethic in the second half of chapter 6. What's the foundation for how we think about relating to our bodies in the world? It begins with the gospel truth of personal transformation through participation in Christ. That's the foundation. The fellow believers whose lives are marked by sexual immorality or adultery or homosexuality, he says, and such were some of you. Don't forget who you are. Christ lives in us today through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so for this reason, verses 12 through 14, he says, your bodies matter to God. Your bodies matter to God. But secondly, therefore, since Christ dwells in you through the Holy Spirit... End of the chapter, your body belongs to God. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's essentially the structure. Your body matters to God. Not only that, your body belongs to God. Therefore, verse 20, glorify God with your body. That's the logic. Well, let's consider Paul's first point in verses 12 through 14, that your body matters to God. 
Here in verses 12 to 13, we see that Paul directly addresses certain ideas or teaching that have been circulating through the church. In the same way that we saw in chapter 1, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas. These are things that were being said among church members and church leaders. Well, here we see additional sayings among the members of the church. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. These were just ways of thinking that kind of illustrate some of their theological errors that some of the church leaders and members suggested that now that they're saved by Christ, they're free to do whatever they want with their bodies. All things are lawful, they say. Their logic might go something like this. Just as food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food, so reproductive organs are meant for sex. But they were confused about their bodies because they had bad eschatology. Eschatology is concerning the end things, what happens at the end of the age when Christ comes. And they had gotten disformed and misinformed on their eschatology, and that's affecting their present day living. And so we learn from other parts of the the letter that people in the church are teaching that there was no future for our physical bodies beyond this world. They were saying that the resurrection had already happened. We'll get to that in chapter 15 when we get there. They were saying things like, well, now that we've been spiritually resurrected with Jesus, the physical no longer matters. At the end of life, our souls are just going to shed off our bodies the way that a snake might shed off its skin. And then our souls are going to be with Jesus. And so what we do with our bodies in this life, since we're going to shed them off at the end of the age, is totally irrelevant. We can do whatever we want. And in fact, if our bodies don't matter, then the sins in verses 9 especially don't matter. That if we're going to shed our bodies at the end of the age and be disembodied souls forever with Jesus, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. But Paul quickly corrects their thinking here in verses 13 and 14. He's going to say, no, God bodily raised Jesus from the dead. And he's going to do the same to you at the end of the age. You have lost sight of God's ultimate vision for your bodies, his purpose for your bodies. Your bodies matter to God. And we see that by the fact that he bodily raised Jesus from the dead who now continues to exist in glorified body as our high priest making intercession for us, reigning at the right hand of majesty on high. He says your body matters to God. Your whole person, body and soul has been bought by the Lord Jesus. It's precious to him. Your body matters. How much 21st century evangelical theology would be helpfully instructed by Paul's correction here. How many of us have have thought at one point or another or have heard it taught or or perhaps even think now that when we die, we're going to enjoy forever this kind of disembodied existence with Jesus and we live this kind of pseudo-gnostic existence and where the spiritual is all that matters and your body doesn't matter at all and you can do whatever you want with it. How many evangelical Christians, I wonder, in the statistics that I, that I pointed out earlier, have been misinformed 
by an improper telos, a goal for their bodies at the end of the age. They don't know that your bodies, not just your soul, but your bodies matter to God. So your body matters to God. And we need to be reminded of this lest we fall into the kind of trap that would make us believe that as long as our souls are safe, we can treat our bodies however we want, to whatever end, whatever pleasure we enjoy, that would be to dishonor God and to ignore the vision that he has. Maybe you're here and that's something that you've been taught. Maybe out of that teaching, maybe that's informed the way that you've lived and you've used your body in a way that does not glorify God. And you know that that was sin. Well, then, friend, I would remind you again of what we just heard in chapter 11 of the redeeming and the transforming grace of God in Christ as such were some of you. Jesus will take you however you are. Remember that old Baptist song, come just as you are, and that's true. But Jesus won't leave you as you are. He wants to change you and transform you by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would have a reoriented vision for the magnificent purpose that God has for your body to be an instrument of righteousness for him in the world. And of the great joy that comes from enjoying him in that way, of giving him glory and of loving him and of loving others around you in that way. Your body matters to God. He sent his son to die in his body because your body matters to God. He rose him bodily from the dead because your body matters to God. Christ is now bodily ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high where he rules and reigns and intercedes for his people because your body matters to God. Christ has done all of that bodily so that there would not be one molecule in you, one aspect of your humanity that would go unsaved. Your body matters to God. That's Paul's opening point. And now he's going to build on it in 15 to 20. Not only does your body matter to God, but if you are in Christ, your body belongs to God. We're going to see a couple of things in these closing five verses. We're going to see, first of all, that your body belongs to God in verses 15 to 18 because it's a member of Christ. Your body belongs to God, first of all, in verses 15 to 18 because it's a member of Christ. Look at this with me. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. For every, for every sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, scholars note that in the first century, being joined to a temple prostitute was a normal religious ritual for ensuring the fertility of your field. You say, what? That is cuckoo for cocoa puffs. But that's what happens, isn't it? That when we reject God, sexual insanity follows. And it seems, according to our paragraph, that some in the church had continued in the practice. 
We also know from earlier in chapter 5 that this wasn't the only kind of sexual immorality in the church for another man had his father's wife. And so some members of this church didn't look any different from what we saw back up in verse 9. Didn't look any different than their city. Didn't look any different than the world. And the church tolerated it. Sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, these were all common in Roman cities. Roman cities like Corinth, and it was common here just as they're common today in modern Hollywood or in our local universities or online where some of our dating apps today aren't that far off from the temples of yesterday. And if statistics about pornography use and hookup culture are true, the professing Christians today don't seem much more distinct from our own city than these believers were from theirs. Paul says in verse 15, here's the real disgrace of it all. If your bodies are members with Christ and you make your members one with a prostitute, then in effect you're making Christ one with a prostitute. That's a staggering statement. He's saying where you go, Christ goes. Where you go, Jesus goes. And whatever you unite yourself with, you unite Jesus to also. And so how often do we see some famous person caught up in a, in a lurid scandal, splashes across our news feeds or our social media feeds? of some celebrity or some politician caught in an adulterous relationship. All of us can remember, for instance, the Stormy Daniels scandal for former President Trump. Or what about in 2015, you remember, and it's only seven years ago, when the Ashley Madison website was leaked to the public. And all those who once thought their lurid affairs were secret were now made known to Everybody. In the Ashley Madison website, users could pay $250 to receive a, quote, a fair guarantee. Well, a group hacked into the website, released usernames that included famous people, included politicians, even supposed Christians like the now infamous Josh Duggar. How disappointed would you be if one of the leaked names was Jesus? Or if you saw the headline, Jesus joins himself with five prostitutes. How devastating would it be to find out that Jesus spent his evenings looking at pornography? Or that Jesus in his 20s really pushed the limits with his girlfriend or boyfriend? Wouldn't you be shocked? Wouldn't you be outraged? I imagine your response would be similar to Paul's response at the end of verse 15. Never! May it never be! Beloved, that's Paul's point. And it's meant to make us go, oh, that's heavy. Your bodies belong to Jesus, they're His. They are members of Christ. Where you go, he goes. And whatever you unite yourself to, you, in a sense, unite Jesus to it as well. Notice how Paul supports his argument in verse 16. He quotes Genesis 2. 
referring to the physical union between the husband and the wife. That's the heart of God's design for sex. Notice he's not going back to Abraham or David or any other kind of, any other one of our heroes in the Old Testament, heroes of faith. They're going to be commended in terms of, of their trusting in the promises of God. But no, when he gets to God's design for our bodies, he goes all the way back to a world before sin. This is what God has designed it for, for union. And so using the marriage union from Genesis 2 as an analogy there in verse 17, he's saying it's analogous then to the believer's union with Christ. That God in marriage has given us a picture of Christ and his church. A three-dimensional portrait, so to speak, of the kind of one flesh union that we enjoy. And so a man and a woman together become one flesh. And so when you and I, by faith, are united to Christ, we become one with Christ. We're united to him. Where we go, Jesus goes. And if that's true, if verses 16 and 17 are true, then it's unthinkable to Paul that any Christian would unite their own body, that body who's a member of Christ, to a prostitute or to use it in any other way related to sexual immorality or any other bodily sin. Now, the fact of our union with Christ makes all sin, and especially sexual sin, far more grave and damaging. And you might be sitting there going, oh, this is really heavy. Some of you might be going, I need out of this room as fast as I can get out of this room. I need you to hear me. The words that we're reading and studying here is God's goodness to you. It is his grace to you. It is his love for you. Because left to yourself, you will end up with a broken heart and a broken body. God has not designed it that way. He has given a grand and a glorious vision for your body, and I don't care how ravaged you may be walking in here one day, Christ can make you new. He can transform you. He can give you a glorious new future. And he can erase a past that you've been ashamed of. And taking away all of your shame, removing it along with all of your sin, he can give you a new lease, not only on life, but on your body. Listen, there is coming a day where the sexual revolution, our culture is going to fold in on itself and it's already happening. And mangled hearts and mangled bodies are going to have no place to go. And do we have a message for you? I don't care if you were once a man, now surgically a, a woman. I don't care if you've given yourself into homosexual practice for your whole life. Christ can redeem it. He can renew you. He came bodily, died bodily, rose bodily, ascended bodily, and now reigns forever in a glorified body because he cares about your body. He'll give you a new future and a new hope and a new lease on life and a new purpose for your body. Oh, friend, trust in Christ.
as such were some of you. Amen? That's the gospel. Well, now Paul pleads with them on the basis of everything that he said. And the Holy Spirit, I think, pleads with us now. He says, flee sexual immorality. There in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. I remember when I was a young single Christian, some of you might remember the same. I remember how much conversation revolved around the question, how far is too far? On the outside, it seemed like we were trying to take sin seriously, at least outwardly. But in reality, we were really just asking, how close can I get to the fire without getting burned? How close to sin can I get without actually sinning? What a foolish way to think. Paul says, flee. Run for your life. Don't play with it. Don't toy with it. Don't stick your toes over the precipice. Run, is what he says. I counseled a young couple some years ago who were struggling with temptation and sexual immorality. And, and in order to save money, he moved in with her, was sharing the same room. And he said, but I sleep on the floor at the foot of her bed. He said, we don't do anything. I said, you're a liar. And he was. But I had to say with Paul, brother, sister, run. Flee sexual immorality. By God's grace, he did. We found him another place to live. Other brothers that came around him and loved him. Same thing with that sister. Both of them are faithfully walking with Jesus today, married and doing well. Praise God. But that could have been a tragic story. Another young man I worked with struggled with same-sex attraction, and he had a long commute home from Dallas, and he knew places that he could pull off along the highway that he could stop and give in to his fleshly desires. And we told him, brother, don't do it. Keep driving. Run. Flee from sexual immorality. And he started driving the long way home. With the Spirit's help, he sought to honor God with his body, and he's still walking with Jesus. He's married with kids. He's leading a godly life. Praise God for his grace. Married men on business trips, flee. Married women in the office, you need to flee. Engaged couples, you need to flee. If you're divorced or you're widowed, you don't get a king's ex, you need to flee. When you're scrolling through Netflix for something to watch, flee, run. When you're listening to music on Spotify, run and flee. Don't toy with it. Your bodies belong to God as a member of Christ. Where you go, Jesus goes with you. That's why we finally see in verses 19 and 20, your bodies belong to God, not only because they're members of Christ, but finally because they're temples of the Holy Spirit. Here Paul concludes his argument with a final, did you not know? Did you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you have bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. 
Paul concludes his argument with a final do not, do you not know? We see that there in verse 19, and here's his point. Having been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus, verse 11, the spirit of Christ now dwells within you. Now, we're a young church. There's lots of babies and toddlers among us. Praise God for that. And if you go out to the parking lot, you might see a, a handful of cars or minivans that say something like baby on board. You're letting the world know that in this vehicle is something precious. Well, similarly, and I just want you to hang with me because I know it's totally cheesy, but the cheesier it is, the more you're going to remember it. Our Christian lives say something similar, that the Holy Spirit is on board. I guarantee you're going to remember it, though, that he dwells in you, that there is someone precious and holy dwelling in us. That's what the temple was to Israel, wasn't it? The dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. In Christ, we're the temple of God. Each one of us, a living stone being built up into a glorious dwelling place for God on earth. Only here's the deal, God can't dwell with sin. That's why he's the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the priests of old, in the same way that they were to guard God's temple against every kind of impurity, so you and I are then to guard God's temple against every kind of impurity as we're able the final implication is this, that if you're God's temple, which we are as those redeemed by his blood being built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, living stones built up as a dwelling place for God, for the whole world to see who he is and what he's like. That's what temples are for. That if you're God's temple, then you don't belong to you. You belong to God. You're his. That he not only dwell and dwells you by the Holy Spirit, but he's also purchased you by the blood of Christ. You don't own your body. You're not free to do whatever you want with it. It's to be used according to his will, not ours. For his good pleasure and his glory, and ultimately for our good. Given that Paul ends with a command... There's only three in the passage. Verse 9, do not be deceived. Don't be taken in by the lies of the world. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And now glorify God with your body. And this is really the, the climax. What is the chief end of your body? The chief end of your body is to glorify and enjoy God forever. God has designed it that way. He sent his own son to live and die and live again so that our bodies might find their end in God's purposes. How do you glorify God in your body? Well, first of all, you trust God's word and use it in the way that God's designed it for. Secondly, you make yourself aware that everything that would come against God's good wisdom for the use of your body, against sin, Satan, and every lie that accompanies in this world. Thirdly, 
that you look forward to a day when this body is going to be made new, incorruptible, turn, or corruptible, turned into incorruptible. You realize that, don't you? Bodily with Jesus forever in a new creation without sin, ruling and reigning with him forever. And what will be the chief end of man in that day, the chief end of our bodies? Will it not be to glorify and enjoy God forever with our bodies? That begins now. That's what Christ has redeemed us for. I just want to show you one thing, and then we're going to finish. I've gone a little long, but it's too good not to share. Turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. We know that in everything that God created, his invisible attributes and his, invisible, or his, and his divine power can be seen. Everybody knows that there's such a person as God, but they suppress the knowledge of God. In suppressing the knowledge of God, verse 24, they give themselves over to what? Notice this, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That looked like generally sexual immorality. Not only that, it looked like idolatry. It looks like Paul's list, doesn't it? Sexual immorality, idolatry, now verse 26, homosexuality. And he says, due to their homosexual sin, they received in themselves, that is in their bodies, the due penalty for their error. But I want you to notice this also. Christ was set forward as a propitiation for our sins, bodily on a cross. He was bodily raised. Romans chapter 6, follow along with me. Having been raised bodily, he says, you have been united with Christ. Sin no longer reigns over you. Therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members as sins of or as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Because what's ultimately happened? Romans 7:4. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law, the condemnation of the law. What? Through the body of Christ. You realize the body of Christ and of our bodies, how, you, how connected they are in the good news of the gospel. God cares about your body. Now I want you to get this. God handed over the world to dishonorable passions that they might give themselves over to the dishonoring of their bodies. They would receive the just penalty in their bodies. But now you've been united to Christ such that sin would no longer reign over your body because in Christ you have died along with him to the law through his body. And what is the ultimate big therefore of the book of Romans? Go to Romans chapter 12. Here's the conclusion. If that's true, if Christ came, died, lived again, has risen bodily, and you've been united to him, then what implication does that leave? Verse 12, he concludes his letter, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that is, by all of his great grace in saving you and sanctifying you and glorifying you in Christ, by freeing you bodily from the very bondage of sin, to present your what? Bodies. 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Romans 1, sin takes our bodies and inverts it to God's purposes. In the gospel, Christ, God unites us to Christ and he writes it so that now our bodies are used for the very purpose God has created it for, that it would be a sacrifice of worship to him with all that we do, that we would use it in such a way that our bodies would glorify God and in them we would enjoy him forever. Don't tell me that God doesn't care about our bodies. Oh, he cares deeply. The son of God came and died and lives again to reign and intercede for us and will return bodily one day because God cares about our body. There is not one part of your humanity that Christ did not come to save, including your body. Let's pray.